Welcome to Always Authors, the literary podcast that presents two authors in candid conversation. On this episode, we're excited to bring you Jess Walter, author of the number one New York Times bestseller, The Beautiful Ruins, which spent more than a year on the bestseller list. The national best-selling novel Cold Millions and his latest short story collection, The Angel of Rome and Other Stories. Jess is joined by Amor Tolls, the New York Times best-selling author of Rules of Civility, A Gentleman from Moscow, and his latest novel, The Lincoln Highway, that debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. After Jess satisfies Amor's request to tell the story of how a backyard tree fort provided a perch to watch drive-in movies, these two friends compare their early storytelling inspirations from Hollywood and music, pass the merits of timely versus timeless writing, and examine their yearning to have lived in other eras. Inspiration starts now. Amar Tolls, thank you so much for doing this. Jess Walter, it's a pleasure. I gotta say though, it feels very uh, unusual to be talking with you without a drink in front of me. That's, I, that's, that's the only problem with this. We should have scheduled this for like six o'clock at night. And then we could have had a Manhattan. That would have been so much more natural. I, uh, it's noon here. I almost poured myself one, but, uh, but <laughs> yeah. couldn't pull it off. And look at us. We look like we're about to land a B-52 with these giant headphones on. So Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah. How are you? How's your summer? My summer is going very well. Thank you very much. Yeah. Are, you, uh, uh, do you, do you have, are you a seasonal writer? Or is there a season when you feel like you're drawn more to the work? Uh, the, the biggest, I, I, the answer to that, I think, is no, but... But the biggest difference in my work habits in summer is that in July, my family is away and I'm alone in New York City. And so it's a, a month when I get uh, unusual, I get, to, I get to sink into my work at an unusual level um, because the house is empty. And I go see them on the weekends. But... I get to work in the morning. I do work in the afternoon. I go and have dinner by myself uh, with my notebooks and work at night in one of the restaurants that you and I have been to. And I'll go to Manetta Tavern where we've been or Waverly Inn where we've been. And, uh, and, uh, and it allows me to kind of work longer hours. Now, the reason for those of you who don't write, the reason this is particularly valuable, it's not so much the extra hours. It's that the ability to write a longer day several days in a row without interruption dramatically changes my experience to the writing because I can, in essence, hear and see the whole thing I'm working on at once, where that gets harder if you keep interrupting yourself with life. Yeah, it's almost like your, your immersion is complete. You don't have to come out of it to have a conversation. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. And are you working on something now? I know people are going to want to know. Yeah, I am working on my new book, but I but I, I wouldn't even tell I wouldn't tell them what it was. Oh, I wouldn't dare. I would. I might tell you. I wouldn't dare ask us unless we'd had three or four cocktails, and then yeah. uh, then I would. But that or do you feel like you're immersed in it? Sometimes I'll get those great writing stretches like you talk about in it, and and then that self castigation because I can't quite find it. You know, maybe I can find some sentences, but I can't immerse. I can't go into it that way. Yeah, yeah, and you and you, it, it's it's a. Our life is like that, right? You have a couple of days where it goes amazing, and then you have a week of where it's frustrating, and you have plenty of self-loathing. You know? So yeah, you get both versions. Yeah. I, what about how about you? How about you? What? How was your work this summer? I mean, I, I, 
it's funny, people always, you know, young writers always ask, do you write in the morning? Do you write in the evening? And I think they're looking to identify themselves in your answer sometimes, but I never hear someone ask about the season. And I realized a while ago, I am very seasonal and the summer for me is not a productive writing time for the most part. And I don't know why. Um, the fall is, I get so wistful in the fall, um, the winter, the spring, but for some reason the summer, um, I think it just brings out in the kid, the kid in me, and I just want to go travel and you know get sun and screw around. And, um, so I, I, I've been push, I've been out talking about this short story collection, um, making notes for this novel, um, but I'm in full self castigation mode, um, you know, trying to figure out you know where does how do I find my way into this novel? You know, which of these characters that I'm starting to come up with is uh, superfluous? Um, uh, but, I, but I keep telling myself that that's just my usual July swoon. Right. Okay. And when is the season? So it's fall. So Fall, for it, some reason to me. That's when you shift gears? Yeah. I, Labor Day? Labor Day weekend? Like, did you get... I, I stopped wearing white and I... Is the Tuesday after <laughs> Labor Day? <laughs> I put on my uh, plaid pants and my my uh, cabbie hat and um, no I, I, I I'm not sure why I think it's just that maybe it's that's when school started maybe it is the sense of things dying I don't know but I, I tend to get wistful and fall and find my way deeper into things I, I like to think I'm out gathering information in the summer you know living in the summer and then writing in the fall that sounds like a good that sounds like a good and, and also your family gets the benefit of you yeah, spending time yeah. with them, well, which, seemed, which was nice. Whereas, you know, I, I yeah, and I, I don't, you know, we we put in a pool several years ago, and my George Hamilton tan really requires almost constant tending. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. If I was up in absolutely the office, dawn to dusk, dawn to yeah, dusk, exactly, yeah. yeah, dawn to dusk. As as long as we're talking about sort of childhood summers and things like that, I was wondering if you would share with our listeners because I I've thought about it a lot. Um, the story about your treehouse and the drive-in theater. Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I was just looking at, you know, this last collection is called The Angel of Rome, and there are a couple of stories that are about Hollywood figures. And it's funny for someone who's never lived in Hollywood how much I'm drawn to it. And I started thinking about those first memories of movies. Um, and they, to me, were almost more vivid than my literary memories. And when I was uh, was um, 10 years old, we moved back from this family farm to a suburban house right next to a drive-in theater, the East Trent Motor Inn. And I still remember when we moved in, uh, my dad was so excited, we get to see free drive-ins. And you know, for we we live in such a non-car culture now that I I don't even know that I could explain to my children how people drove into a movie theater, rode over these little hills, put a speaker on their car window, and listened and watched these you know double triple features, often with a cartoon in the middle. There was a swing set at the front, um, and we were at the very back corner of that. If you could imagine, like the deepest center field seats at a baseball stadium, that's kind of where we were, um, com you know, compared to the, to the screen. And um, I remember when we moved in, my dad hauled out some lawn chairs and put them on the garage. 
And there was just this moment of disappointment when we went up there with our popcorn and the and the screen was smaller than a postage stamp. And, yeah, we, right. and, um, and there was such a delay on the sound that Clint, East, Clint Eastwood fired his gun and it was, you know, moments later before we heard the shot. And I don't remember my dad ever going up there again, but my neighbor John and I were so in love with this theater that we built a, uh, a tree fort and we would go out with, sometimes with binoculars and um, watch... Um, all kinds of movies and it was the 70s and this period of both schlocky horror movies and the most incredible auteurs and so I would watch the remake of The Blob alongside Dog Day Afternoon or I'd watch a Woody Allen movie and uh, and it was just such an amazing way to kind of fall in love with storytelling and movies and I think as I told you the one flaw was as the weather started to get colder and it became fall and I uh, got drawn to writing again um, I we couldn't hear the movies because people would roll up their windows and the sound wouldn't come out of their car windows anymore and so we had this brilliant idea to steal a speaker so we climbed over the fence during the daytime clipped one of those back row speakers uh, my friend's dad was an electrician so he had a spool of wire and we wired it and he was unspooling the wire while I buried it with dirt all the way back to our tree fort and I still remember going up there at dusk with our popcorn and climbing the tree fort and just seeing the theater manager um, slowly pulling up our wire and <laughs> following the mound of dirt straight up the theater fence to our uh, to our tree fort. So it was um, a great combination of my early criminal uh, yes. background and my and my theater background. Yeah. But the, be the beginning of your life of crime, you could have yeah, gone two yeah. directions at that point, right? You right, could either become exactly. Uh, a storyteller or a crook. Yeah, exactly. But I think a little bit about my, you know, I like to change it up and write different things all the time. And it reminds me sort of of those movies that, yeah. that would come on. And I would, you know, I, I would think Blazing Saddles was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. And I'd think Midnight Express was, you know, the most harrowing thing I'd ever seen. And I always thought, what if you could combine those? And I think my desire to crash genres sometimes comes from that. How about yeah. you? Were you a, were you a movie buff as a kid? Uh, I was, and uh, you know, and I, I've I've observed to you that I'll share with our listeners that uh, Jess and 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 I we are we are white guys about the same age. We're both in our late fifties. I, I can't remember. We're like within twelve months of each other, yeah. or twenty months yeah. of each other. Um, but setting that as and we've you know, we're both writers setting that aside, like his upbringing is as different from mine as you can get while still being middle aged, you know, late old white guys. You know? Totally. Yeah. But, but in the sense that I grew up in, in the Massachusetts, uh, in the Boston area in a suburb, you know, while Jess was, was out in Spokane, um, I, my family, uh, you know, I come from a, a, where there was, you could trace college back over multi-generations. I mean, I didn't go to the college my parents went to, but both of my parents went to college. My grandfather went to college. My great-grandfather went to college. And I think, Jess, if I remember right, you were the first person in your family uh, to go to college. And first person to go to college. We, I, As you know, my father's passed away, and I found yeah. his last report card from ninth grade in which he got his grades for eighth grade English were FF. 
D minus. Um, I think finally they just said, let's just pass this kid through. So the fact that he had a novelist, my sister is a library director, and my brother is a sports editor is yeah. pretty remarkable. But yeah, first... The human species. It's amazing. Yeah, right? it is. And he was a great storyteller. I just don't think he was a reader. But to have... Yeah. Yeah, I think you're exactly right to have, I mean, working class, first college, first generation college student, and, and yeah. for you to come from that much more... Um, you know, much more higher education, much more yeah. bookish background. Yeah. So we came from these very different backgrounds. And we ended yeah. up in many ways in the same spot, you know. <laughs> but but uh, I, so with that as a as sort of a context to answer your, your question, I, you know, my life was, uh, you know, your father was a union man, third generation union man or, or you know, what have you. And, and I, you know, I think you, uh, I, maybe this is oversharing of, of your life, but, but uh, you know, you were a parent very young. You were a single parent, very young, you know. So yeah. I mean, it was like I say, everything about the way we kind of came into adulthood was different. But my, in retrospect, I think uh, I was very affected by, influenced by how little was going on in my surroundings. You know, I grew up in a suburb that was was tended to be pretty middle class, uh, you know, maybe a little upper middle class, but somewhere in that zone. And uh, there was you know, within the scope in which we lived, there was no risk of poverty. There was no, uh, you know, we had healthcare. We were all being educated. Um, but it was a very, and it was a largely white uh, community for sure. Um, the ethnic mix was Italian, Irish, German, you know, uh, Scandinavian. It was not Hispanic or black, although obviously those communities existed in the Boston area. But my suburb was, was, as I say, white, but multi-ethnic, um, but pretty benign. And I think in retrospect, I look back at what really affected me. And, you know, my version of your story was it started with um, Cole Porter. Ella Fitzgerald's Sings Cole Porter. And that record, but we, you know, we, my father was a fan of it. It was played in my house a lot. I loved it, and I didn't even know why I loved it. But I, you know, I think what happened later is I realized that the, the glamour described in Cole Porter's music, the wit, the sophistication, the sort of the romance, the high society, that's all kind of embedded in that music, those songs, was very exciting to me. And, you know, there in this sort of benign suburb. And then, you know, my father was a movie fan. So our version, my version of what you did is that he was a, there was a double feature house in Cambridge. And we would drive in, and it would be the double feature house where every Saturday, every Sunday, it would be two double features. They were different every day, but the, the, the double feature would be related. So it would be like two Audrey Hepburn movies, and then it would be you know, two Clint Eastwood spaghetti westerns, and then two uh, Marx Brothers movies, and two Bogart movies, and then you know, two great uh, you know, musicals from the 40s or whatever. And so like, we, would, we would go. We'd go into town. You know, we'd go to, uh, uh, you know, have dinner and then stay for the double feature. James Bond, we'd go see two James Bonds back to back. Or, um, but anyway, that, like the Cole Porter music, being introduced to the world of Humphrey Bogart and, you know, the world of gangsters or the, the style of, uh, of um, the great sort of, of Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant, again, it was this tantalizing sort of window on a totally different world. And, and I think that's sort of what, what got me going. It's just sort of, 
there wasn't much going on in my hometown, but all these other worlds became so compelling that I wanted to be a storyteller, or I became a storyteller, uh, as I sort of began imagining myself in these different places. I, I think if I had, like, it turns out, like, if I had been yeah. a really exciting or traumatic childhood, I probably would not have been a writer. <laughs> Yeah. It, it, well, it's funny because I can hear some of Cole Porter in both uh, the rules of civility and the gentleman from Moscow. I can, you know, I can. And my, my daughter, who is a um, an English Ph.D., gave you the greatest compliment. She just said he is so alive in the scenes he creates um, and that just that noticing everything, that creation of everything. Um, but in the Lincoln Highway, it's almost like you've channeled a character more like my father. Um, you know, and I, I thought, you know, reading those those characters just reminded me so much of my of my troublemaking dad, you know, and who I think would have, you know, probably gotten along with Duchess until he uh, smacked him around a little yeah, bit. But right. but that that story seems do you feel like uh, the Lincoln Highway is a little bit of a departure for you? Um, I mean, I think you build those scenes and create that sense of nostalgia for that time as vividly as those other books. But the, just the subject itself, did it feel like a departure? It didn't. I mean, not really in that. I mean, like you, <clears throat> excuse me, I think, you know, you and I both like to start a new project in a different spot than the one we just wrapped up. And I don't, I don't mean that necessarily literally. I don't mean, you know, but yes, you and I like to tackle a different story in a different way when we shift from one novel to the next, right? Completely, um, yeah. Like The Cold Millions, so different from, you know, uh, uh, whether it's The Beautiful Ruins or your other work. And, yeah. and, I, and I, I kind of operate in the same way. I, I think that the, the thing that's interesting to me about my own experience with The Lincoln Highway in retrospect and I'm interested in your thoughts about this, is that in, in retrospect, um, I kind of realized when I was finishing that book that it takes place in 1954, over 10 days, with these focus on these 18-year-olds, as you're saying, uh, who get into some trouble. And um, sort of only really as I was finishing the book did it occur to me, you know, my dad was probably 18 in 1954. Mm -hmm. And I went back and looked, and sure enough, that's exactly what he was. He was 18 in 1954. Wow. That never occurred to me. And when, as soon as I had that notion, I thought to myself, oh, of course. Because on the one hand, we are all so influenced by and shaped by the world uh, between the age of when we're, say, 6 and 16. You know, between the age of 6 and 16, the world we live in, culturally, economically, politically, it has a huge outsized impact on how we have come of age, how we see the world later, uh, you know, how we treat others, what we think we're, uh, how we think of ourselves, our moral development, all this stuff comes out of, so the, the, the what we go through in witnessing the world between this, you know, this uh, impressionable period, you know, if we were 10 during the depression or versus in the second world war versus Vietnam, you know, that has a big impact on how we see the world for the rest of our lives. Anyway, my point is that in as much as this period between 6 and 16 has such a big influence on us, I think the second biggest influence on us is the period when our parents were between 6 and 16, you know, in essence, or whatever, 10 and 18, is because that's what shaped them. And then they're uh, constantly yeah. handing that on to us, you know, yeah. through stories or through their own worldview or through what, you know, how you know they their experience, uh, and so we 
so I kind of in retrospect, I say, I, I feel like I had this connection to the mid fifties in this way that I wasn't even very conscious of, but there's no question about it that the world of that time had been instilled in me because it was when my dad was a teenager. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I'd never, th- I'd never thought of nostalgia as inherited before, as an right. inherited trait. But I think you're exactly right. I mean, I, I long for those pool halls and totally. Um, you, you and your, yeah, of course. So yeah, I didn't mean to cut you yeah, off. And that, go ahead. No, and my, um, looking through these photos of my dad, it's interesting how often he's leaning against a car, or sitting on the hood of a car, or and and that. I think that when I started the Lincoln Highway, that idea of a road trip that, you know, it um, and I, I it, for me, it also connects with almost like a pirate adventure. Like you're you know, I think I told you the Lincoln Highway just hit all of my um, my um, Treasure Island vibes, you know, stowaways and, you know, an adventure and danger. And um, and I, yeah, I think I'm totally drawn to those kind to that same those same periods. Um Similarly, when I was writing Beautiful Ruins, I, I set it in 1963, which was the last year my mom could have traveled to Italy. And I started the book thinking of my mom. And so it, it works its way in without even, you know, with with this sense of, uh, of you know, uh, this this subtle nature, I think. But yeah, 1958 to 1963 is a period I just keep finding myself yeah. drawn to. Um even, even in the book I'm sort of writing now, almost right before I came on stage. Here are two brief messages from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Carrie Mayer, author of the national best-selling book, The Paris Bookseller. So I'm not just a writer, I'm an avid reader. And since Always Authors is sponsored by Bookfinity, I wanted to tell you a little bit more about it. Bookfinity is a website that is built by readers for readers. So you can get personalized book recommendations, create and share your book lists, review books, and refer friends to earn rewards. You start by taking a quick quiz to discover your reader type. And once you complete the quiz, you'll be taken to your My Bookfinity account. I took the quiz and got my reader type. I am a heroin addict, which is so accurate because I do love strong female leads. Now when I log into my Bookfinity account, I will get personalized book recommendations based on my reader type. Bookfinity also has a like it or lose it function, so I can quickly like the books that I'm interested in or lose the ones that I'm not. And it has a unique review system that goes beyond a star rating. I love that I can review a book based on how it made me feel and recommend it to others. To get started, visit bookfinity.com and take the reader type quiz and create your personalized account today. Buxton Books is proud to be a season sponsor of the Always Authors Podcast. Buxton Books is located in downtown Charleston, South Carolina on King Street, and we are a full-service, independent bookstore that also specializes in presenting one-of-a-kind literary events. Please come visit us in Charleston or online at buxtonbooks.com to purchase books and to receive our newsletter for information on events and booksellers' recommendations. We ship anywhere in the United States and internationally. Happy reading from Buxton Books. Cold Millions must have been influenced by stories your father had told or, or lived, I would think. Yeah. I mean, is that fair to say? It was, it was as much my grandfather. That's my right. grandfather, yeah, of course. Yeah, who was named Jess Walter, told me stories of jumping trains yeah. and 
told me how to jump a train. And a couple times, because we lived right, you know, I, I, the place I was from, there wasn't a wrong side of the tracks. It was just the tracks. But we lived right along the railroad tracks next to the river. And I remember watching this train one time and, you know, remembering what my grandfather had said, you know, this isn't going the right pace. I'll bet I could, I bet I could latch onto that boxcar and see if it's open. And I didn't do it. You know, I, um, uh, I had far, I was far too afraid, but that, you know, whenever I encounter in a book and, and, you know, in the Lincoln highway, I was like, Oh, they're going to get on a train. And I, I think, yeah, I do think about my grandfather and, and that, you know, there's a kind of, um, uh, it is almost like cinema. I think the way it lands in your in your brain. I can almost see my parents and grandparents' lives um, and the world that they lived in yeah. from photos, from the stories they tell, um, and it just does make you want to go into that world and recreate it. Yeah, and, and it's you know more about it that you think you do, you know, because yeah. of of that dynamic. I think. Yeah, that's yeah, that's so interesting. And do you and do you still listen to Cole Porter albums? Oh, I I do I do I force my children to listen to Ella Fitzgerald some. Do I, I do and Ella Fitzgerald, but, yeah. So like you know, I, I'm a big fan of '50s jazz. And again, it's one of these yeah. things. Like I was saying earlier, I discovered it, and it was another world. I wish I could have gone to, you know that you yeah. know the world of Humphrey Bogart, I, I the world of Cole Porter. These are worlds I wish I could have gone to. I, I was a big yeah. rock fan. And so like when I discovered, you know, the existence of Woodstock and things, I was like, oh, my God, you know, I wish I could have gone to that, you know. And, yeah. um, but so, yes, I, I these worlds of music are all the same thing for me. I, I've been listening to yeah. Miles Davis's autobiography and hearing just what's going on in New York in the after the Second World War in the early 50s, where uh Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker and Miles Davis and Thelonious Monk all know each other and, yeah. and, and, and others. And they're, they're, they're playing with each other. They're living with each other in sort of in apartments. They're, uh, you know, you're doing drugs together eventually, you know, uh, and, and, and suffering from that. Um, but, but to it's what a uh, glamorous and exciting thing to imagine having been in that. So every, anytime I see a world like that, it just gets all my blood, you know, running, and I want to go. I wish I could have, you know, done that instead of yeah. being in the suburbs in the seventies. Right. The, uh, the the yeah, I, I am totally the same way. And you know, for me, it was Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters and the Further right. Bus. Um, it was Hemingway in Paris. I always imagined there was some critical mass of artists that living in Spokane, Washington, I was surely excluded from, and yeah. you know, and that. And that desire to be in those moments, um, I love the mo. I love where you, where you start rules of civility at the end of the party when the party has crashed. It, my favorite Fitzgerald short story is Babylon Revisited. Oh yeah, which embodies that same sort of world. Like, what's it like after the party has crashed? Yeah. Um, and that that's another really compelling, interesting time to me is that is that moment of, you know, of when of when those critical masses have kind of blown up, you know, when the Harlem Renaissance becomes something else. And um, yeah, those are such interesting times. Do you think as as a novelist that we are sort of on the outside looking in that we 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 sense that early on and 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 we're describing those places we wanted to go those moments we wanted to be in yeah i, I think um 
Well, I, yeah, for me, I mean, my my writing, and this seems to be true for you. I don't know. You could tell me, but but for my, I am much more a writer who likes to take something, a place that I have not been, a situation yeah. I have not been in, uh, populated with people whom I do not know, mm-hmm. and to go into that environment and and study it and experience it and learn from it and be entertained by it. And uh, and I do think that for me, I am a closer observer, at least at this stage in my life, when I do that. Yeah. You know, whereas, I, you know, if I, if I was trying to describe to you some aspect of my childhood or my, my, you know, my life with my siblings or whatever, it would, I don't think it would have that same sort of, uh, it would be as crystalline. Yeah. Um, because it's familiar and because, you know, it's blurry around the edges or, you know, I'm taking half of it for granted or whatever. I, but it's, it's stepping into that place that I haven't been where my antenna really get, get go up, you know, and, the, and the, I start even the static and noise um, around um, around the present moment or what we think of as the present moment. Oh, yeah. Know? Yeah. Like I, I, the idea of trying to write a purposeful book in our times to me is terrifying. You know? Yeah. Because to sort through it all in a way that would work as as a form of art to me, it, it, it's not my expertise. You know, I, I I'm better off getting a little distance from whatever it is so that I can yeah. I can step into it without the confusion of the moment in time. Yeah, could you? But you must see the present moment coming out in the things you're writing. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. writing the the gentleman from Moscow. You must feel um those cultural shifts i mean he he is he's almost like this reed as the tides are blowing in and out of the of this long period of the 20th century and yet you see echoes of um you know totalitarianism of of the pressure of the mob you see all these things that must have made you feel like you, you were touching the contemporary moment in some way yeah you know i i you're nice to say that i I, I tried not to think about the contemporary moment at all. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, and, and I, I, I think that uh, I, I'm very interested personally in, I don't, I'm, as I was saying a second ago, I'm not very interested in trying to write a work that's timely. I am interested in writing a work that's timeless. And, and, and when you do that well, I think, uh, if you can write a work that it feels timeless in some way, it can suddenly, I think, resonate with different times. You know, and of course, Another way of what I'm saying is, is I aspire to write like those books that I've admired that have survived 100 years because yeah. they resonate with generation after generation because of the way in which they're built. Yeah, you know, they, they are they can constantly be revisited and in a, with, a, with a fresh experience. They don't feel dated. They can feel relevant now, just as they did 50 years ago or 100 years ago. You, know, you look at Dostoevsky. It's, you know, mm. You, they, you read him today and it feels relevant to you and to your experience in the world, which is an amazing thing. Completely. And, and so that's for me always the aspiration is, is to try to create something that, that, and it's sort of this mysterious and complicated group of ideas around what would allow a work to do that, yeah. um, that I think about a lot. Um, but, but one of them is, you know, trying not to be too timely in the way yeah. that I'm writing. Which is wild because you capture time, you capture the specific times you write about so perfectly. But I think you achieve that probably, you know, through that that presentation of humanity, which is what we still, 
you know, what still strikes us in the Brothers Karamazov. We, you know, we, it stops us cold to see the same philosophical truths, you know, 120 years later. And, and yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, right. Yeah. It's sobering. It's yeah, sobering it that you realize, oh yeah, right. They were the same as we are hundred yeah, years ago. We, and we've improved everything, technology, yeah. and yet, have, yeah. you know, have we, are we any better judge of humanity than we were? Are we worse yeah. in some ways? You no, know? yeah, you know, it's true. Now, so in your case, I'd be interested in, in, in hearing, you're a person who, who came from, you, you were a journalist, mm-hmm. uh, you've written nonfiction in your body of work, mm-hmm. um, and then, you know, now you're, you're really writing fiction. What was that transition like? Did was that did you miss aspects of nonfiction? Do you feel that having been a journalist has influenced the way you write fiction, or was it a liberation? You're like you're like at yeah. last I'm 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 in the realm of I can make it up or whatever, or mostly make it up, and I no longer have to you know get a quote from a, yeah. a selectman or whatever, yes, you know, right. whatever it is. You know, I don't know what, what, what's what's your relationship. Yeah. What, to, one of the things I've loved about our our. Uh, booze soaked meals a couple times is we both took really unusual routes um to literature we didn't go you know we didn't um immediately start teaching and you know and uh whatever education we had we both took a different route and and it's it's funny i think when i was a younger writer i i imagined that there was a jess walter who had gone the traditional route and gotten his mfa you know who was living in some neighborhood in brooklyn and going to a lot better literary parties than me uh and it was probably my third or fourth novel when i said when i realized the great fortune of having been a journalist and i talked about your powers of observation your ability to be in in scene and it's it's interesting to know where that comes from. A writer like Richard Powers, it seems to come from a, almost a science background, um, you know. And perhaps it, you know, your, you know, your forays into finance or business gave you a, a different sense of of what's happening. But I can trace mine completely to journalism. You know, the the idea that you go out and with nothing, armed with nothing but your curiosity and a notebook. Um, and you find out what happened. Yeah. Uh, you find out how systems run. You you're just never afraid of interviewing people. And this, I still remember one of the terrible things you have to do is after something awful happens, you often have to go interview people. And I was I, I didn't want to feel like a mosquito buzzing around the outside. And I still remember this woman was working at a convenience store, and I was a 20. I think I wasn't even 21 yet, um, and I had to go cover this. this woman who'd been shot during and killed during a convenience store robbery. And she lived in a little apartment behind the convenience store, behind the gas station. And I remember just shaking as I knocked on the door. And there was this guy there and he said, come in. And I said who I was and, you know, said I I wanted to talk about her. And and he said, well, uh, so far in the newspaper, she's just been a convenience store clerk. Can you try to make her something more. I'll tell you about her. And I said, yeah, I can. And, uh, and we just had this amazing conversation about her. And he talked about how hard it had been for her to lose her son and how she'd taken this job, hoping to make, make enough money to, you know, she'd had a drug problem and then she'd gotten this job at this store. And just the portrayal of that human, and just, I can still see inside that little apartment, the two of us talking. And it was, yeah. you know, it was this real lesson in 
the in opening the lives up, opening those, opening the door, essentially knocking on that door and finding out what's inside. And you know, over my eight nine years as a reporter, um, you know, I I think I was just so fortunate to have people tell me all these incredible stories and to realize how badly people want to tell you about the world. And if you if you're armed with that curiosity, yeah. You know, it's well, it's just this amazing thing. It's not just the curiosity, right? You have you have to be you have to have Jess Walters empathy at the same time. Right? I mean, I mean, you it, have to it, be open. You, you certainly have to be, have to be open. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's and I was sort of thinking, even as you told that story, I've, I've never heard you t- tell that story. It's a very moving story uh, or experience. Is you know, the in the '30s films that I grew up in loving and admiring, you know, you have the hardened journal. Yeah. Right. You know, the journalist, by definition, (laughs) in like movie after movie, was the person who knows all of human failings. Yeah. And is therefore, you know, relatively either indifferent to or suspicious of or ironic about, you know, uh, the, the whatever else everybody oh, else is and, concerned about, you know, and, and has so much cynicism and speaks so quickly too. Yes, yeah. that's right. Pal, well, tell well, me some more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I love what, it. Right. What love were you doing? Kind of what were you doing August seventh? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But so so as you were telling it, I was sort of thinking to myself, that's the other route, right? That you could be a journalist who does get hardened over time, or you know, and just you know, we're here to write the news, you know, and but yeah. you could be the other thing, which is really what you know, it's very Jess Walter, which is you get you see humanity. Yeah, and you you let it affect you. You let it, yeah. you know, you 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 take it seriously. You and, and that I can see how that would be very powerful as someone who becomes a narrativist over time. You know, I think I was becoming a father at that time, oh, and yeah. I almost feel like I was gaining consciousness. <laughs> you know, yeah, you, right. I went from being a teenage boy, you know, um, hoping to get bigger tires for my Mustang to yeah. being a father going out and covering this amazing stuff as a 20, yeah. 21, 23 year old, you know, and it's amazing. Um, yeah, I think it, I think it was so formative and it was my MFA and it, you know, it was my master of fine arts to be out on streets talking to people and to then to seek out writers like William Kennedy, who brought, yeah. you know, who was a reporter himself and brought that same, um, you know, sense of, of, compassion i think to iron weed and to you know billy phelan's greatest game some books you and i have talked about yeah, and yeah absolutely uh, and so a lot of my first heroes um you know joan didion sort of had that journalism background and um and and it's it, it's interesting too in your work sometimes i'll I'll read something and I'll feel like you've read everything. Like, you know, I'll read a gentleman and I'll just feel all of the Russian writers, but just as, uh, as almost like furniture in the room or something, not, not homage necessarily, but just as if they're in there with you. Um, Rules of civility. I'll feel Fitzgerald's and and Hemingway and the whole lost generation, you know, the, the, the Lincoln highway, all this sort of, um, uh, you know, road trip fiction and, and, you know, and, and do, do you feel like the work bubbles up for you that way? Yeah. And, and I, what you're describing is absolutely true. And it's probably to a fault, you know, no, <laughs> I mean, I would no. say that I would say, I would say that, I mean, you know, but, but I, yeah, I, I, um, I, I, I as, as someone who you know, I began writing as a kid, I've always loved storytelling in in all of its forms. So I, you know, I can remember 
yeah. Mary Tyler Moore episodes, you know, from beginning <laughs> to end, you know, yeah. or MASH episodes, you know. And, and my wife is always like, how do you know that? You know, and it's it's yeah. because if you told me an interesting story, it it made an impression on me and, and, yeah. uh, and a big one. And so, but, so that was true of my reading or film or all these things. It's sort of, it's just, it's a part of, of my consciousness in a, in a, in a very present way. And so yeah. for me, it's, I almost have to fight not to have it come rushing out. You know, I have to say, okay, hold on. We're not going to talk about, you know, Henry James right now anymore. Yes. You know, we don't yeah. need to talk about Henry James in this section, you know, but, but because it's so natural for it to, uh, to come up because they're my friends, they're my memories they're, Yeah. They're, uh, they've helped me sort of understand the world, you know, or at least my version of the world, you know? Yeah. And so, so, but now, so there's that. And I, I think the other thing though, is that I do feel, some people ask me about, one of the ways I've come to think about it, you know, is if you go to a dinner party with your peers or a cocktail party or whatever, whatever, you're 20, you're 40, you're 60, I don't care what age you are, anywhere in the United States and you record that dinner, it's going to include things like, uh, oh, what are you watching these mm -hmm. days? You know, people, yeah. I, you can't have a dinner party in, you know, contemporary America without somebody saying, what are you watching? You know, what, what, what streaming are you watching? You know, and, uh, you, you, you know, is it Breaking Bad? Is it The Wire? Is it, you know, whatever, you know, or whatever the, you know, the, the current uh, thing is that, that's capturing your, your attention. And that's a very natural thing to want to talk about as a group of people, right? Did you see this incredible story? And we're all kind of doing it. Music comes up in that way, in the same way that politics, political events come up in that way. But but we do air together uh, the sort of the thread of the cultural life around us as a part of how we communicate, and that's sort of an interesting thing. So for me, it's very it's natural mm -hmm. to have it come into the narratives that I'm writing um, as a to be a clearly a part of the landscape that I'm writing about or the people I'm writing about. I mean, in a way, it would seem weird to me to write about them without any reference to that. Well, and and, and to me, it's not, it, it reminds me of the way when I'm watching a great filmmaker, I think, oh, they've seen this filmmaker and that filmmaker and this right. filmmaker. It, it It's almost like a, a fluency in that in that medium. And I, and I suppose that's almost what I mean more than like, I think, Oh, yeah. this is from that, or this, you know, it's just, yes. you, you seem to have such a fluency in the literature of, especially of the, of the late 19th through the 20th century that it, um, for, I think that's one of the reasons book lovers just find their way into it because you've read the great stuff and, and apply it into the work. And that to me, that's the great thrill. Well, you're very nice to say it, and I, and I, you know, I, I've thought about it. Uh, fluency is a very interesting concept that you're raising, and, and mm -hmm. for any young artist, or it is something to to think about. Certainly, like going back to those jazz heroes, you know, Miles Davis was extremely interested in yeah. where is this music coming from? Who, how is it played in the twenties? How is it? How is this song played in the thirties? How how is it sung by so and so? How how do, how was it interpreted on trumpet versus saxophone by these two heroes of mine and and so there was none of this sense of like I would never play what that guy plays on the contrary right. you know there was this constantly this interest in I want to learn that and take it in my own I want to, I want to see if I can make it explore it in, the, in in my own style and he had this incredible you know his relationship to Charlie Parker and to Dizzy Gillespie who were a little bit older than him yeah uh, 
was monumentally influential, but a part of it was him trying to also realize I can't, I can't play as fast as Dizzy Gillespie mm -hmm. and I will never play as fast as Dizzy Gillespie. And so yeah. he goes and starts to explore a different style, having been informed by bebop, yeah. but then, you know, you end up with kind of blue. Um, yeah. But, but so fluency, I think is very interesting. And I love as a, as a, as a fan, like I love say looking at, um, Edward G. Robinson and James yeah. Cagney and Bogart in the gangster movies of the 30s and yeah. 40s. And then you <laughs> see that being reinterpreted in, you know, in Coppola, in the Godfather exactly. sequence. Yep. And then you get to see it reinterpreted by Scorsese, you know, in this kind of more gritty 70s era that we've, you know, more violent, more fast moving, but, more, you know, mm -hmm. but still fascinating. And then you suddenly, you know, it, it's being, you, you can take it into the next generation and revisit uh, the, the Sopranos, you know, yeah. uh, this where it opens with a mobster in a psychiatric, you know, and it, with, yeah. meeting with his therapist in New Jersey, right? Yeah. And you're like, wait, what? You know, but that is so terrific that that and, and combined also with like the long, a long Buster Keaton sequence that you know yeah. they also saw and loved, and yes, yeah, and, and that 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 fluency that goes across genres, but but you know, and 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 I think yeah, I I love that, and I love that idea of just taking everything in. Um, I, I had a painter friend once who was an abstract expressionist painter. And he looked at an abstract painting once and told me there was a drawing error in it. And I remember thinking, <laughs> how can you tell? And he said, oh, you can tell. And the, the idea of Miles Davis, you know, taking all of this in so that he knows everything. You have to know all the rules to then start to break them. You have to know yeah. what what you're leaving out, even if you make something minimal. Um, and that 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 idea of fluency, I think, is something we don't always talk about. And it's and it's you know the you can read something really great, but not have the sense that that they've soaked up the literature that matters for the piece they're writing to. Yes, I think yeah. that's right. Yeah, that's totally well. We, we uh, it's almost a happy hour here, so I suppose uh, we we should get that cocktail we promised ourselves. But as always, Amor, it's so wonderful to talk to you, and um, uh, in person soon, I hope we can lift a glass and and keep talking, continue this long conversation we've been having. Jess, I'd love that anytime. Yeah. All right, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please visit alwaysauthors.com to learn about upcoming episodes, to read a transcript of this episode, to buy the books discussed here, and for more information about our sponsors, bookfinity.com and Buxton Books. Always Authors is an exclusive production of Atomic Focus Entertainment. Cheers. <laughs>